Would you please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to spend our time together this morning looking at verses 3 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. This is the word of God. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you pray with me? Father, um, we, we need your help in this moment. Um, that your word would affect us, that it would pierce our hearts and souls, that you would not just give us more information and knowledge from your word, but that you would transform our lives, and that we would see your son as highly exalted, as lifted up, and as beautiful. That's what you do when your word is preached, and so we trust that that's what you're going to do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Philippi, wants these people whom he loves to live their lives in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. And in our passage today, Paul explains that gospel living is humble living. It is living from a mindset that considers others and their interests to be more important than our own. The Philippian church needed help with humility, and we are not unlike them. We are proud people, just like the Philippians, we act out of self-centered desires. We are puffed up full of love of ourselves and truly believing that we are more important than others. We need help to be humble. Yes, we need correction of our pride. That's important, but Paul doesn't just or simply correct the Philippians of pride, nor does he just command them to be humble. He wants to fuel them for it. Paul is seeking to stir up the hearts of the Philippians toward awe and wonder at the humility of Christ, which when truly considered and perceived will result in the humbling of ourselves. 
And so Paul tells them, and by implication us, to look no further than Christ Jesus himself, putting him forward as the ultimate example of true humility and the only way by which we are enabled for a life of humility. This is what we are going to focus on in our time together this morning. Only when we truly grasp Jesus Christ as the greatest display of humility will we be empowered for humility. Friends, we are not naturally good at this. We are not naturally humble people, and we are in desperate need this morning of God's grace to grow in this. And I believe that through his word, through this passage, God is wanting to kindly help us in this worthy pursuit. So we're going to look at this in four parts. If you're taking notes, here are the four points we're going to look at. First, we are not humble people. Second, we're going to look at humility displayed. Third, we're going to look at humility enabled. And fourth, we're going to see humility's result. So let's start with our first point. We are not humble people. And we are certainly not humble like Jesus. This may not be something you really need to be convinced of. Most people in this room, uh, whether a Christian or not, are probably thinking, of course I'm not humble like Jesus. He was the most humble person who ever lived. Or maybe you're sitting there and you don't care so much and you're just trying to figure out why God seems to make pride such a big deal. Isn't, isn't being proud a good thing? Our culture says that. Or maybe, maybe you're like me, and though you believe the Bible is clear on pride and humility, you're not always so quick to recognize when we're actually being proud. It can be hard to see, and it's easily neglected. But whatever our thoughts about pride and humility, Paul wants us to be convinced that we are more prideful than we think we are. And our pride before God and others really is a big deal. It's harmful to others. It's hurting our own souls. We might tend to think of people who struggle with pride as those who kind of walk around with their chest out and their chin up and their nose. This is kind of like a weird position, but, you know, stuck up, full of themselves, always critical of others, and always thinking, I'm better than you and you and you and way better than you. You know what I mean? The Disney, in the Disney movie Beauty and the Beast, uh, the villain character Gaston is a proud and arrogant man. He's like what I, what I just mentioned. He thinks he's the best of the best. He thinks he's all that. He walks around saying things like, quote, don't I deserve the best? And, quote, it's about time that you paid attention to more important things, like me. <laughs> oh, when we hear the word prideful, we, we, we can think of those people, right? And we're, we're kind of thinking, that's them, but I'm, I'm over here. They're really proud. Um, those people are the proud ones. But look at verses 3 and 4 with me again. In Paul's command, we begin to recognize what pride really is. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition, that's self-centered desires, or 
conceit, vain glory. But in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Friends, do we, do we live like that? Are we self-forgetful the way that Paul calls us to be? Are we concerned with others the way that he describes? Take a moment to think about that. Do you, do I live like that? Think about just this morning. Were your actions coming from a mindset that was looking out for you or for those around you? Have your thoughts been primarily concerned with serving others or serving yourself? Even when you have served, was it with joy or was it with a grumbling and complaining spirit? What about when you get into a disagreement with a friend, right? A disagreement that turns into an argument all because your way is best and they just don't see it for some reason. And not only do I want them to see that my way is best. I'd love, I'd love for them to acknowledge it publicly would be nice, maybe on Facebook, and tell me that I'm right and wonderful. <laughs> what about when you decide to do some surprise yard work for your spouse, which for some reason they don't seem to take very much notice of, uh, or at least not as much as you'd like? You don't receive the thanks that you deserve. After, of course, you did all that, and you tweaked your back, lifting those bags of mulch, and you walk around with an exaggerated limp, right, holding your back, <laughs> groaning, not, not too loud, but loud enough so that they'll hear. What about when you're driving? I could just say that. What about when you're driving? <laughs> but <laughs> what about when you're driving and someone brake checks you, and you think, we all think this, right? I'm just so glad that they did that. I feel safer, they're caring for me, I was driving closer, and I'm just, I'm thankful to God for brake checks. No, we think, who, who do you think you are? It doesn't take long until we are struck with the reality that we are naturally bent towards love of self, towards exaltation of self, self-promotion, bent towards the needs the need to be right, bent towards the need to be praised and loved and admired and bent away from humility, self-forgetfulness, counting others as more important. Friends, pride is subtle. It is manipulative. It is working hard to convince you that you are important. You are always right. You are worthy of praise. And, and maybe just in this situation, you're better than everyone else. Pride is all about you. It is trying to convince you that you are God. Friends, pride is what got us into this mess in the first place. When Adam and Eve first sinned, bringing about the fall of mankind, their sin was pride. Genesis 3 tells us that they ate of the fruit because they wanted to be like God. Pastor C.J. Mahaney defines pride as when we 
aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge our dependence upon him. That's exactly what Adam and Eve did. And that is, that is what is lurking inside the crevices of our hearts every day, every second, there is a sinful nature inside of us enticing us, enticing our hearts to be like God. And just in case you're not yet convinced of the destructiveness and the seriousness of pride, these words from James 4, 6 are a sobering reality. It says this, listen, God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. If you're wondering where God's opposition is against, it is not merely against the worst of the worst, the unjust, the abuser, the Hitlers, and the Putins of this world. It is clearly stated God's opposition is against the proud. Those who consider themselves more important and better than others, those who are puffed up with love for themselves, those who want need the, the praise, the love and affection from everyone around them. Friends, that, that is us. That's me. God opposes the proud. That is a terrifying reality, considering how much pride is actually in our hearts. But what does the rest of James 4, 6 say? This is, this is good news. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That is amazing. In Isaiah 66, verse 2, God says, But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit. What does that mean? C.J. Mahaney puts it so well in his book, Humility, when he says this. Though God is aware of everything, he's also searching for something in particular, something that acts like a magnet to capture his attention and invite his active involvement. God is decisively drawn to humility. The person who is humble is the one who draws God's attention. And in this sense, drawing attention means also attracting his grace. Do you desire to have God's grace, God's, God's gaze upon you with pleasure? Do you desire for him to pour out on you more grace, undeserved kindness and favor? That gracious gaze is reserved for those who by the grace of God put off pride and put on humility. He looks to the one who is humble. We are not naturally humble people and growing in humility is no easy task. The Apostle Paul knows this and he doesn't wanna just call us to a change of mindset but he offers to us an example which we might look to over and over and over again. And so we come to point number two, humility displayed. I'm gonna read verses five through eight. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As Paul offers Christ to us as the leading exemplar of humility, we notice a few things. Christ was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God something to be grasped. We wanna be careful here. Paul is not saying that Christ gave up his divinity, emptied himself of his godness, so that he was no longer God. That's not what he was saying. He had, Jesus had equality with God. He was equal to God. He was and is forever God. And though he was in the form of God, meaning clothed in, the, in God's glorious splendor, he did not regard the fact that he's equal to God as something to be grasped or used for his own exploitation. He did not use his godness for his own selfish advantage. I won't say who, but one of the three Tedeschi sons, you already know, <laughs> was in Sunday school. This was a long time ago. He was in, uh, he was about three or four years old, and during the lesson, he was acting out and talking too much and being a distraction. Some of you already think it's me, and I'm a little offended. I can, like, I can feel it. I'm not saying. He was acting out, talking too much, and the teacher had to say, you have to stop talking. You, you have to pay attention to the lesson. And this little pastor son <laughs> said, quote, do you know who my dad is? <laughs> he was, he was a knucklehead, that's what he was. He was using, he was trying to use his position as a pastor's son, which by the way has no power. <laughs> he was trying to use his position for his own selfish advantage. What we never see in the Gospels is Jesus using his divine sonship for his own advantage. Even more astounding, we never see Jesus using his own divinity equal to God. The fact that he was God, creator of the universe, maker of you and me, he never used that for his own selfish purposes. Jesus Christ was the only person who could have said do you know who my dad is? Do you know who I am? You should, you should be serving me. He would have been right to say that. But instead, we see the Son of God emptying himself. How? By becoming a man. The creator condescending to become one of those whom he had made. We see God taking on flesh, entering the world, not as one with power, but a powerless, weak baby. Not as a king, but as a servant. We see the one who reigned over all, 
wrapping a servant's towel around his waist and washing the feet of his disciples. Can, can you picture the scene? The disciples walk into the room about to enjoy dinner together and no one wanted to stoop so low to wash the mud and dung off of the other's feet. And then the king of the universe knelt down and with his own hands washed their feet. We see the perfect, spotless, blameless son of God emptying himself, how? By carrying a cross made for thieves and murderers on his back, stumbling up the hill to where he would be hung on that cross, unable to breathe, the one who supplies breath to every man and woman, not able to catch his own, dying as he cried out, do you know who I am? No, 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 no. He cried out, Father, forgive them, for that's why he came. He came to offer forgiveness to those who were least deserving of it. And on the cross as he died, he experienced the full righteous wrath of God poured out on him for all of those who would trust in him. That's humility. Jesus was the only one who could have rightfully required our worship and our service, and yet that's not what he came to do. He came to serve. He considered us in our need for salvation as more importantly than what was rightfully his. And that mindset of humility shaped everything that he did. Paul presents Christ as our example because there is no better display of what true humility is. And so we look to him. When we don't receive the credit that we feel we deserve, and when our hearts well up with pride and annoyance, we pray, Jesus, you really did not get what you deserved, but willingly took the punishment that I deserve. Please give me grace to respond in the kind of humility that you exemplified. We look to him when someone we don't really like is spoken of in a negative light. We don't join in or rejoice in their slander, but we remember the holy son of God and how he drew near to sinners. He drew near to the gross and to the wicked and to the annoying. And he drew near to show them mercy. And we ask him to help us do the same. We look to him when our spouse asks us to help them with a task that cuts into our free time, our relaxation time. I've worked all week, I've earned this time of rest. Why do I even need to help with this? It's not even that important. No, we remember Christ, who in humility gave himself up for the sake of our well-being. And we pray, Jesus, help me look. Help me to look for the interest of others rather than myself. That's what you did. Help me. We look to him when the feeling that we are better than someone begins to quickly build up inside of us. We remember Jesus who emptied himself for us. And we ask for grace to empty ourselves and consider others more significant than ourselves. In every situation, friends, we look to Jesus as our great example and the ultimate display of true humility. But to understand this passage, 
We can't just, we can't just see Jesus as our example. I mean, he's never less than our example, but he is always more. And so we come to point number three, humility enabled. Christ's display of humility was meant to be more than just something we look at and try our best to replicate. This kind of gospel-centered, gospel-fueled humility needs gospel fuel. It needs to be empowered. Commentator Dennis Johnson helps us grasp this when when he writes, when Christ left the bliss of heaven for the miseries of earth for you, his purpose was not only to rescue you from sin's just deserts, though it was that. It was not only to set you an example of humility, though it was that. It was also to reconfigure the inclinations of your hearts so that his mindset, that is his joy in selflessly serving others, is becoming your mindset. He is transforming us. How does this play out? How does Christ's display of humility reconfigure our heart's inclinations? You know the classic phrase, you are what you eat? Well, in this case, I think it's appropriate to say, you become what you behold, or you become like what you behold. The more that we fix our eyes on Christ and his humility, pondering it, meditating on it, speaking its truths to our souls, staring at it with wonder, we will become more like him in his humility. The power of change is not in the beholding as an action, right, but in who we behold. Transformation happens because as we truly behold the humility of Christ, the believer can't help but find it beautiful. We can't help but find him beautiful. This is why Paul doesn't just command us to humble ourselves. He knows that the result of beholding Jesus and his life of humility is the transformation of our souls. But friends, none of this would be possible without the cross. If we only had Jesus' great example of humility but didn't have his atoning sacrifice on our behalf, we would be without hope without the hope of our pride being fully forgiven, without the hope of our salvation, without the hope that he who began a good work in us is still working and is completing it. We find that hope at the cross. Jesus' humiliation to the point of death was more than just the greatest example. It was the single event that changes everything. Because of the cross, the righteousness of Christ is credited to us, so the Father looks upon us and sees his son's humility. And because we have been united to Christ and given the power of his spirit, the humility to which we are called is totally enabled. It is no longer an an impossibility. If you feel like it's impossible, it is not because of the cross. Christ's work on the cross and our union with him makes being humble people possible. That is the hope that we remember and cling to. So when you are in the midst of temptations to look out only or even mostly for your own interests, remember the cross. I've said this 
over and over again because it is what our souls most need. In any situation or attitude where we are tempted toward pride, stop and ask, what does the cross have to say about this? Jesus died for the sake of the undeserving. I can now love those who don't deserve it. Jesus gave up his rights for my sake. I can now give up my rights for the sake of others. Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them. I can now forgive those who have offended me. Jesus was mocked and spit on with no response. I can now humbly hear criticism and insults without reviling in return. We look to the cross. We remember the cross again and again and again. We join Paul in marveling at the humility of Christ in his becoming a human so that he could die on our behalf. And as we do, dependently praying for God's grace to help, we will find that the Lord is kind to help us with what he calls us to do. And at the end of our passage, we read that all of this humiliation is leading somewhere. And this brings us to our fourth and final point, humility's result. Read with me verse 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The humiliation of Christ, his emptying of himself by taking the form of a servant and his humbling himself to the point of death on a cross is not where the story ends. Christ Jesus, the one who has made himself low for us, God has raised up. That's what exalted means, raised up. God has lifted the humble one up to the highest place, exalting him above all others. We might be reading this and think, well, that's what happens to Jesus. I can't wait to see what I'm going to get when I humble myself. I can't wait to see what's in store for me. And, or, or maybe you're thinking, all this humility is hard stuff, but if, if I get to be highly exalted, it will all be worth it. Sounds good to me. We have to ask, is that, is that what Paul is saying? Is that what God is saying? Is that what happens when we follow the example of Jesus? Not exactly. But Hudson, in, in James 4.10 and Hebrews 5.6, or for, sorry, 1 Peter 5.6, it says that if we humble ourselves before God, he will exalt us. And I'm really glad that you brought that up. Um, it is a true and wondrous reality. But the kind of exalting we receive is not like Christ's. We actually get a hint of it in our passage when it says, therefore God has exalted it. No, God has highly exalted him. Remember, exalted means raised up. When, it, when God exalts us, he takes those who are in and of themselves poor, low, and raises them up to what is undeserved. When God exalts Christ, listen, he takes the one 
and the only one who made himself low, who stooped down for the sake of others, for the sake of you and me, and he raises him up to the highest place, the place where all praise, all honor, all glory and power go to him, for he is worthy of it all. God raises us up like this. One day, we will stand before God and knowing all of our sins, all of our failures, all of our prideful motives, he will look at us and he will say, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Because of Christ, God has chosen not to remember our sin against him, and in its place he sees the righteousness of Christ and all of the good works that he enabled in us by his grace. And he will say, well done. He will commend us. Does that not astound you? Does that alone not cause you to be humbled? That's amazing. And what motivation we find there to then, by his grace, pursue a life worthy of the gospel, to pursue the humbling of ourselves for others so that we can one day hear him say, well done, enter into my joy forever. What an example we have in Christ who emptied himself for us. What power we find in him to follow his example in humbling ourselves, considering others as more important. Brothers and sisters, what joy right now and forever this will produce in our hearts. And so we look to him, we look to Jesus Christ, marveling at his display of humility, and there, by his grace, we find the fuel, the enablement, the empowerment to pursue a life that reflects his humility to the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we... We need help in this. We are not naturally humble. We are so bent towards ourselves and building ourselves up and we, we need a work of grace in our hearts. We need change to happen, transformation to happen and that will only come by the power of your spirit, by your grace, as we behold Jesus Christ. So help us today and tomorrow and the day after and every day until heaven. Help us to look to the one who humbled himself for us. And may we, as we look to him, become more like him and become more deeply in love with him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.